I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter today, keep us moving right along here in Revelation. We're almost at the end of the, the series. Revelation 18. I want to actually read the whole passage this morning, so let me read the, the whole chapter and then we'll dig into it and talk about it. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Whoa! Whoa! O great city! O Babylon, city of power! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who traverse or who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour... She has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down 
never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all those who have been killed in the earth. Several years ago... My parents had a house fire. Uh, Thank God they were not in the house. My parents were at work. But they got the call and they came to the house and opened the door and uh, saw the fireman opening the door and saw the the black smoke billowing out and the fireman plunging into the darkness. And fortunately, they were able to put out the fire before the house burned down. Uh, But the smoke damage was massive and extensive. It's incredible what just smoke and heat can do to ruin a house without ever having it burned down. Uh, I mean, it was so bad they had to, to clean the house up, they had to gut it down to the studs and then spray all the, the walls with smoke, non-smoky smell stuff, uh, whatever it was, and, you know, kill the... And, and the whole house had to be cleaned that way. Um, and, and they lost almost everything. You know, they, they had a few things left, but most of it was just lost due to smoke and damage and heat. Uh, I flew out there, like, the next day because they were pretty traumatized by seeing their whole life kind of go up in smoke, literally. So uh, I flew out there, and it was really strange walking through this burned-out house. My dad was sort of showing me things. And I think what was so weird about it was seeing all the stuff. You know, all the stuff you grew up with in your parents' home, just the stuff. Like, you know, there's that weird picture that's always been there. You don't know why they have it, but they always have had that picture. And they've always had that old chair that dad falls asleep in, or, you know, whatever. Just the stuff of, of your life that you grew up with. And just ruined you know, most of it they had to throw away. There's a little bit they could salvage, but like all their clothes and all their furniture and all the, you know, electronic things and appliances just had to be tossed and chucked. It was, it was really amazing to see. And, and as I was studying Revelation 18 this week, that image just kept coming back into my mind, you know, standing and seeing a house fire. And, and I feel like that's sort of the the feeling of Revelation 18. It's, it's as if we're standing observing a huge house fire, but bigger than a house, right? B- bigger than a whole bunch of houses. Bigger than a whole city on fire. You know, it's, it's as if Revelation 18 is us watching our home in this world, the whole world, the whole structure of human civilization and all of the technology and goods and services and things that the human race has built over the millennia, all of it under the judgment of God and going up in flames. And as it goes up, this great cry reverberates through the universe. Fallen, verse 2. Fallen is Babylon the great. So what we have in chapter 18 is, is sort of uh, an extended ode to the fall of Babylon. It's an extended uh, reflection and meditation on this world, this world system in which we live, when someday Christ returns and God will bring it all down in one great fiery holocaust and it will be forever destroyed. In some ways, chapter 18, it really is the continuation of chapter 17. So if you're here last Sunday, you studied chapter 17 with us, chapter 18 is just a conclusion. You know, go back to chapter 17, verse 1. 
where it says one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment, or you could translate that word judgment, on uh, the punishment or the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. So, so there was the promise that we would see the judgment of the prostitute, and now it's really being accomplished in chapter 18. We're getting this extended, very detailed vision of the judgment of the prostitute in chapter 18. Now maybe you're, you're going, wait, 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 wait a minute. Chapter 17 is talking about the judgment of the prostitute. Chapter 18 is talking about Babylon, which is a city. So which is it? Is it a, a woman or is it a city? And the answer is it's both. It's just different images, different symbols for the exact same thing. You know, this is poetic imagery. This is uh, visionary imagery. And so it's using metaphors and images. Just like in poetry, the images will change. The, the pictures will change. But it's talking about the same thing. Uh, just to prove to you that we're talking about the same thing, look at 17 verse 3. I'm oh, sorry, 17 verse 2. It says about uh, the prostitute, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now look at Babylon, chapter 18, verse 3. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So similar, very similar language. Or go back to chapter 17, verse 4. Look how the prostitute is dressed. It says in verse 4 of chapter 17, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was uh, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Now go to chapter 18, verse 16. Here's another little glimpse. Woe, woe, O great city. Here we go. Dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stone, and pearls. So it's the same figure just represented in different ways. You know, I mean, a city doesn't wear clothes like that. It's just, it, there's imagery that's taking place here. But both the prostitute and Babylon describe the same reality, just as, for instance, the church in the book of Revelation is depicted both as the bride of Christ and the new Jerusalem. So there's a parallelism that's taking place here. Um, so Babylon then is, is being judged. This is a picture of the future when God will finally and forever bring down this world system. And at the center of God's judgment, at the center of why God is going to judge the world in this sort of Sodom and Gomorrah-like fiery destruction is a certain sin of Babylon. What is it at the heart of Babylon? We talked about it last Sunday. It is the idolatry of wealth. That at the core of Babylon and the prostitute, whoa, I'm going to break the ship here. Uh, at the core of Babylon and the prostitute, we're sinking, uh, is, um, is wealth, right? It's all the luxury that this world has to offer. That's what Babylon's lurement is. Look at the treasures, look at the pleasures, look at the wealth, look at the luxuries. Come, you know, you don't need God, you need what we have to offer. It's, it's the pulling us away from the worship of the Creator to worship the treasures and pleasures of the creation that the culture offers us. That's the, the essence of Babylon's allure and temptation. Again, let me just show it to you from the text. For instance, there's a lot of examples. Let me just pick a few. Chapter 18, verse 3. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with her and 
shared her luxury. See the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn. So spiritual infidelity toward God, committing adultery is the imagery there. Spiritual infidelity to God takes the shape of being committed to excessive luxury, loving treasures and pleasures and all things the world has to tempt us with and allure us with. Or, or you know, look down again, uh, verses 12 to 13, right? You have this extended list of all of the things the world makes and offers us. Or verse 14, they will say the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your, what? Riches and splendor have vanished. Or once again, just one more, verse 19, woe, woe, O great city where all the ships of the sea, what, became rich through her wealth. In one hour she had been brought to ruin. So at the heart of Babylon, the heart of the prostitute, is this kind of a satanic temptation to move away from God, to turn away from God, and to find our security, our meaning, our happiness, our purpose in luxury and wealth and treasure. Boy, is this a timely passage for American Christians. Hmm? I mean, if, if we don't live in the greatest offering of goods and services ever, then I, I don't know what is. I mean, this is a really prophetic passage for us to think about. And so we need to think about this, that this whole world that we stand so in awe of with all of its technologies and, and goods is coming to an end. And that's what chapter 18 is, going back to sort of the structure of it. It's an extended reflection on that coming destruction of this world. Um, and, and what you have in chapter 18 is you have a series of different people seeing the fall of Babylon and sort of giving their take on it. You, you know, you have... Uh, Voices from heaven, you have angels, you have sea captains, kings, merchants. And so it's like everyone's looking at Babylon's fall and commenting. It's kind of like, you know, this is the way I was visualizing it. It's all the people standing around the fire. If you want to get a crowd of people, what do you do? Light something big on fire. <laughs> Anything big on fire, people come. They just want to see it. It just draws crowds. People stand there and they just, you know, kind of watch it burn. Uh, and so that's how I sort of visualize this passage in my imagination. I, I was thinking of Babylon burning the whole crowd of the world, heaven and earth gathering around it, and, and there's sort of like a heavenly news correspondent going around interviewing people in chapter 18. And what do you think of this burning? You know, and, and that person gives their you know, feedback. And here's an angel over here. Let's talk to him. What do you think? You know, and here's a merchant who used to trade with Babylon. And what's your opinion? And so we get all of these different perspectives on the destruction of Babylon. And taken together, they give us different themes and different things that we should understand about the coming destruction. So what I want to do is I want to sort of kind of take us through chapter 18 at a high level. We're not going to hit every little detail um, because you need to at some point go home for your Father's Day parties or whatever. So, so we need to kind of keep moving through this chapter. But I want to highlight three major themes, three major aspects of the coming judgment of God on this world that, that I think are the major thrusts that we find here in this passage. And the first one is in verses 4 to 8. And it's this. God's coming judgment on Babylon will be just. J-U-S-T. It'll be just. It'll be fair. It will be right. It will be deserved. When we see Babylon fall on that day, nobody's going to be like, well, that was an overreaction. I mean, it'll, we'll say, wow, just and true are your judgments, O God. That whatever God does is right. And, and He always does what's right and holy and true. He's the good, just judge. And, and we see that here. That's the emphasis 
is God's justice in the destruction of Babylon. Look at verse 4. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Alright, I want you to take verse 4 and sort of put it on pause in your mind and come back to it later. But look at the justice theme in verse 6. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. So, so when God looks at this thing from heaven, because I really think this is God's perspective, God speaking, He looks down at Babylon being judged, and He's saying it's a very just judgment. It's very much a, a retribution for what she has done and how she has destroyed and corrupted the world and pulled people away from God and toward the worship of idols. Um, <clears throat> look at verse 7. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. So her whole modus operandi was to become comfortable, to become self-sufficient, and to become arrogant about it even. I mean, look at the next line in verse 7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. I'm, I'm fine. Who needs God? I've got everything that I need. I'm my own God. I, I lead my own life. I make my own rules. I make my own truth. I am God. And, and so there's a, a self-sufficiency that comes from luxury and wealth and riches and power. And she's fallen prey to it. And so God says, alright, here's what we're going to do. As much luxury and wealth and self-sufficiency as you've had, your judgment is going to be an equal measure of misery and woe at the judgment. I'm going to flip, I'm going to flip the whole thing around. It'll be just. Um, this made me think of a parable that Jesus told. I'd like to just show it to you real quick. It, it's a parable that just seems to have a lot of parallels to this section with me, for me. Um, it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's in Luke chapter 16. If you want to turn there real quick, put a bookmark here. Go to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It's on page 1037 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Here's a parallel passage that has many of the same themes. And again, this idea of justice where, where those who bought into the lies of Babylon are given misery and there's a great reversal, a just reversal that takes place. Look at Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus told this parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. Purple, of course, was extremely expensive in those days. You only wore purple if you were super rich. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this rich man is a Babylonian citizen. He is thoroughly Babylonian. You know, why? Because he has money? No. Let's be clear about this. Having wealth or prosperity is not inherently sinful. It's, it's where our hearts are and therefore what we do with the things God has given us. You know, you think about the new Jerusalem. It's paved with streets of gold. You know, God blesses His people with prosperity. God blessed Abraham with prosperity. So it's not that prosperity is inherently sinful. But what's, what you can see here is that this man looked at the prosperity with Babylonian values. And he said, ah, the reason this prosperity is here is for my own self-sufficiency and my own enjoyment, my own luxury. And he can't even see this guy laying right at his door. This guy who's so hungry, he's like, like rich man, I would just, can I just lick your fork when you're done eating? Could I just come to your floor and lick it because I'm so hungry? I mean, even the dogs have pity on him. At least the dogs lick his sores. 
You know, this rich man can't even have pity on this guy who's right here. That's the spirit of Babylon. Is that self-indulgent, self-righteous, self-trusting security and wealth and prosperity and a hunger for more that makes us oblivious to people around us. You know, do you want to do a quick heart test to see if you've been drinking the Babylonian Kool-Aid? How do you know if you become Babylonianized? Here's a biblical test. Are you indifferent to the poor and the needy who are laid right at your doorstep? You know, I can say all I want about God and Jesus and loving Him, but if there's if poor and needy are right there and I care not and I'm unmoved, then some, there's a huge disconnect between my theology and my life. Um, and when I say caring about the poor and needy, I'm not talking about people way out there as sort of a theoretical abstraction. I mean the people who, who come into our lives that are right there that we trip over on the way to accomplish whatever we want to accomplish. And when I say poor and needy, I don't necessarily mean people who don't have money. I, I mean, there's all kinds of needs and brokenness and hurts that people have that come right into our lives. And if when those people come, if I'm so consumed with my stuff and acquiring my stuff and fixing my stuff, because that's the thing about having stuff, is you not only get it and not only you need to upgrade it, but then you have to fix it because it breaks and you have to take care of it and you've got to get insurance policies for it. Uh, and you, know, you have to do all this stuff to take care of your stuff. And you can just get your whole life consumed with managing and maintaining this, this sort of pile of treasure that you've amassed for yourself. And, and you're totally oblivious to this guy who's laying right there. It's so easy to become arrogant and to look down at that person and say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of your own fault that you're in this mess. And you know what? What if it is? I mean, a lot of times people are in a mess because it is their own fault. Guess what? It was my own fault when I was laying at the foot of the cross. When I was a sinner coming to Christ, it was my own fault. But Jesus in His grace had mercy upon a self-destructive sinner like me. And so the reason we reach out to the poor and needy is not because you know, we say, well, they deserve it. It's not because we're really trying to fix society. Brothers and sisters, I am not one of those people who believe the church can transform society into a utopia. I don't believe that. I believe our, goal, our calling is to preach the gospel and to, to, to call the elect to salvation. I, I don't think we're going to transform the society. So why do we care then? I'll tell you why. Because we love the gospel. And the gospel is, is demonstrated in reaching out to those that God puts right in our face and, and showing the grace and the love of Christ, sometimes in tangible ways, that God has shown us as well. Um, so God's going to bring someone into your life pretty soon. Are you ready? There's going to be someone coming into your life. Maybe it'll happen this week. But very soon, God's going to put someone at your doorstep. And we need to have hearts of compassion. Unlike this rich man, getting back to the story. Okay, so let's get back to the theme of justice here. That was sort of a side sermon. Verse 22, Then the time came when the beggar died. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell. Where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So there's the big reversal. Now the rich man is down and Lazarus is up. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony here. So in life, the poor man Lazarus just wanted a few crumbs. In death, the rich man just wants a drop of water from the, the finger of Lazarus. And Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you 
received uh, your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted and you're in agony. So what's the message there? Is it is that if you have a certain net worth, you go to hell, and if you have under that net worth, you go to heaven? Is that the message? You know, we're, we're not saved by works, and people were not saved by worth either. We're, we're saved by grace, but the point is, when God's grace lives in us, it manifests itself in concern and compassion for those who are poor and needy around us in different ways, just as Christ has had compassion on us. And the point is, look at the justice. Now you're getting the opposite of what you gained for yourself in this life. And so going back to Revelation 18, that's the, the first theme I see here, is that it's going to be just. There's going to be a great reversal that takes place. If this is your home now and this is your treasure now in this world, it will be taken away when Christ returns. So don't hold on to this world with greedy grasp, but, but let go of it for Christ's sake. And then the second sort of major theme I see here in Revelation 18, the first is that God's coming judgment is just. The second is that God's coming judgment on Babylon will be terrifying. So that's the second adjective I'd use. First is that it's just. Second, that it's terrifying. I think that's the major thing you get out of verses 9 to 19. 9 to 19, now the interview is going around. He's interviewing new people. And now he interviews the earth dwellers who've been doing commerce with Babylon. So now he talks to, verse 9, the kings of the earth. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth. Verse 17, the sea captains, all who traveled by ships, sailors, all who are in their living from the sea. Now he's going around interviewing all the, I call them the FOBs, friends of Babylon. Okay, These are the people who said, you know what? Babylon's where it's at. This is where I'm going to make my life, my living. Babylon's going to be my home. Everything this world has to offer, this is it. This is my house. This is my home. And now Babylon's burning. So these are the people of, and this is their perspective, and what they see when they see Babylon burning is terror. It's horrifying. I mean, look at the terror in these passages. Verse 9, for instance. They, they see the smoke coming up. Verse 9. They will see the smoke of her burning. Verse 10, terrified at her torment, right? Uh, verse 15, the merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand off terrified at her torment. Verse 18, when they see the smoke of her burning. So, so there's this great fiery, terrifying destruction that takes place. This huge house fire as the home of this world is, is coming to an end. It's like Abraham when he woke up in the morning and looked out over the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw smoke like smoke of a great furnace coming up. So, so there's sort of a Sodom and Gomorrah type end coming upon this world. You know, just as Sodom and Gomorrah was the place of what? It was a wealthy place. It was self-satisfied. It was consumed with pleasure. It evidenced itself in a lack of concern for the visitor and the weary traveler, the needy person at the doorstep wanting to abuse those people instead of take care of them and show hospitality. So, so, so in the same way, this world is another sort of Sodom and Gomorrah kind of um, climate. And someday God will bring it to the very same fiery end as it did before. Look at the terrified responses of the people. Verse 10, terrified at her torment, they stand far off and they cry. And what do they cry? Whoa, whoa. This is the famous Hebrew, oy vey, oy. Right? Oy vey. It's, uh, it's funeral language. If you were a Jewish Old Testament person, you would use, say this at a funeral. Oh, you know. In, in the Middle East and Middle Eastern cultures, people are sometimes more demonstrative with grief in some cultures. 
you know, bang their head, throw dirt on themselves, rip their clothes. Oh, you know, I mean, we, you know, we're at a funeral and we're kind of like, you know, and that's it. I mean, <laughs> we're just, that's how we are. We're the frozen chosen. But most cultures express emotion and, and especially grief. You know, it's, it's sort of normal to kind of let it rip. And just let, maybe it's more healthy, I don't know, but they just let it out. So there's weeping, as they see this world coming to an end. And you see that repeated. Verse uh, 15, 16, woe, woe, great city. Verse 19, woe, woe, oh, great city. There's this weeping and wailing and sorrow. Why? Because their home is destroyed. If you go all in for this world, and this is your thing, you know, and your vacation home and your second home and your early retirement and golfing, I mean, if this is it and this is your home, think how distraught you'll be when it goes up in, in smoke. You'll be, whoa, I mean, there's nothing left. Notice the, the terrifying scale of the destruction. So it's a terrifying fire, there's terrifying responses, there's a terrifying scale. I mean, that's what I get out of verses 12 and 13, is that all of the stuff of this world, you know, they have this extensive listing. It's just to kind of drive home the massive scale of everything that will be lost. Gold, silver, precious stones, verse 12, pearl, fine linen, purples, cloth, uh, wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, olive oil, flour, wheat, BMWs, flat screen TVs, boats... Houses, iPads, yeah. I remember I talked, actually I brought my iPad back this week. I showed this to you last week. Okay, true story. This is true story. I went last night, I used it, checked some email, I went and had dinner, came back to turn it on. It was dead. God killed my iPad. (laughs) As an illustration of this text. And I was like, oi, oi, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like one minute it's an amazing technological marvel. The next minute it's a paperweight, right? <laughs> you know, it's frisbee. I mean, whatever. Just throw it in the trash. Uh, I will say, though, some guy after the first service, he came up and he's like, I can fix your iPad. And so he, I don't know, laid hands on it or something. and <laughs> <laughs> It's alive. So it's fixed. Yeah, but you know all, all these things, all these things that we just think are so amazing, just burning, burning, like the Hingham dump. All the junk just sitting around, you know. All the stuff people spent money on, just junk, and it's gone. And people say, "Oi, oi, oh, it's all gone." This world that I I thought was everything, and now it's lost. Just one more terrifying thing before we move to the third view. But just look, just one more terrifying thing. Look at the terrifying speed with which it will all happen. That's another, I think, major theme here in this section, in verses 9 to 19, is that the speed, verse 8, therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Verse 9, in one hour, or verse 10 rather, in one hour your doom has come. Verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Verse 19, in one hour... She has been brought to ruin. So part of the terror of this is not just the whole thing going up in smoke, but that it happens so dramatically and quickly that when God moves in judgment, it's done. 
and this world will be over. Which is rather interesting because you think about how long it's taken for Babylon to get to where it is. Think about the, the centuries and millennia of human cultural development as one culture stands upon the shoulders of the next and technology and material goods and services improve. You know, it was the Stone Age and then the Bronze Age and then Bronze Age II and then the Iron Age and all these ages and then the Industrial Age and now we live in the you know, Information Age and who knows what else is going to come after this. And, and each age advances technologically and in terms of the goods and services. I think in the last hundred years, that sort of, that, that kind of line of increase has really, you know, gone like this. There's been a sharp increase in a sort of exponential growth in what human beings are manufacturing and creating and coming up with. It's really amazing. Uh, now do this. Here's a little imagination experiment. Imagine if Jesus doesn't come back for another thousand years. You know, oi, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but it is, it's kind of conventional wisdom today. People think like, oh, Jesus has got to come back soon. You talk to evangelicals, do you think he's coming back soon? Oh yeah, I know he's coming back soon. And we should be ready at any time, right? But, but I am also saying that some people in the past have thought he was about to come back and he wasn't. So he, he could delay a thousand years. You know, maybe, maybe the return of Christ is 3010. I mean, what if it is, right? Now imagine this, how big and amazingly complex will Babylon be a thousand years hence? What will it, I mean we can't even imagine, we make sci-fi movies to try to imagine it. What will this world have to offer? What will human beings have developed? How amazing will Babylon be if Christ were to tarry a thousand years? You know? And so all of this achievement of human progress, so amazing as it is, not inherently evil, but turned into idols by our sinful hearts, that's the issue, and in one moment, in one hour, done. In one hour, wiped away. That's a terrifying thought. And so when you interview the people, the, the FOBs, the friends of Babylon, it's terrifying. Right? So there's... Uh, and then, so the final one now. So we've had a just judgment that's coming on Babylon. We've had a terrifying judgment in all of its different forms. And then just quickly, the last one I see in verses 21 to the end uh, is, is that it's a, it's a complete judgment. It is a thorough judgment. It is a final judgment from which there is no recovery, from which there is no rebuilding. That seems to be the major theme of verses 21 to 24. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down. Here it is. Never to be found again. It's gone forever. You know, imagine a huge millstone being thrown into the ocean. You know, what does it do? It hits the water right and it floats there for 20 minutes and then it slowly kind of works its way down. Oh no. It's like a rocket. My father-in-law and I took a, uh, uh, a, mush, a big like 200-pound mushroom or whatever they are for a, a mooring, a boat mooring. We, we rowed it out because we're going to put a boat out in front of his house. And, and so we're out in a little dinghy thing, and we got the mooring. You know, the two of us were like trying to get this mushroom out. And I'm telling you, when that thing hit the water, it just went, and there's all this chain in the boat. And the chain was like going over the edge. And, you know, I was trying to make sure I wasn't caught up in it. It was, it was kind of scary just how violent and powerful and fast that thing went down. And there was no bringing that, that puppy up. It's, it's down there. That's the point, right? It's to get the mooring down. But yeah, when Babylon falls, it will never be restored. Look at the language. Notice that phrase again and again. Never again. Verse 21. The uh, never to be found again. Verse 22. 
The harpist and musicians will never be heard again. The workmen will never be found again. The sound of the millstone will never be heard again. Never again. Never again. They have rebuilt Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Gulf Coast is being rebuilt. People will live in, you know, New Orleans again. Um, 9-11, ground zero. It will be rebuilt eventually when we get through, you know, all the New York bureaucracy of Manhattan. Eventually it will get rebuilt. But when this comes down, when this is ended, there's no rebuilding. There's nothing to rebuild. There's no materials with which to rebuild. There's no one to do the rebuilding. It's, it's just over. This world as we know it will be completely done and we're not going to come out of the, the ground like ants and start, you know, rebuilding the little ant hill that got stepped on by some kid. I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's over. Complete and final. And at that point, the world will be purged and God will have to come and bring a new heavens and a new earth. God will bring the new Jerusalem, not built by human achievement, but brought down from heaven. God will restore the creation to Himself in that day. A just judgment, a terrifying judgment, a final and complete judgment of this world and all that we hold dear and think is so wonderful and amazing. So what does this mean for us? What are the applications? What are we supposed to do with this terrifying vision, this sobering picture? What do we do with it? Um, Well, I see two applications in this passage. There are two commands here. And you could say that both of them start with the letter R. The first one is this. Run. That's the first thing we've got to do with this passage. Run. Do not stay in Babylon. It's coming down, so don't be there when it does. Verse 4. I heard in a voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Run! Run away! So that you will not share in her sins, that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now, what does that mean to come out of Babylon? What does that mean to run? Does that mean that that all of us here should leave metropolitan areas and that all Christians should go find some remote place and form kind of an Amish sort of enclave? Is is that what it's saying? Because, you know, Babylon's a city, so get out of the city and go live in the country? No, no. Uh, The point of getting out of Babylon is right there in the next line. So that you will not share in her sins. So in other words, coming out of Babylon means disassociating yourself from the idolatry, the sin, the values of your society. You know, in in John's day, Babylon was Rome. But even if you left the city of Rome, you were still part of the Roman culture, the Roman values, the Roman idolatry. So the point wasn't whether you lived geographically in the actual city of Rome. The point was, are you participating in the whole system of idolatry and, and worldliness that's been created That's in every culture and every time? Or are we standing against it? Are we participating in the whole thing? Come out of it so that you won't share in her sins. When I was thinking about this coming out of Babylon and what that means for us as Christians, I I was really reminded of a church that we studied in Revelation. Remember the seven churches in Revelation? That last church, the church in Laodicea? There was a church that had been caught up in Babylon. In fact, let's just close this talk. Let's go back to Revelation 3 and let me just show it to you real quick. The church in Laodicea. Christ writes seven letters to seven churches and Laodicea was the worst. And what was their problem? Answer, they became Babylonian. They were captive in Babylon. Verse 15 of chapter 3, Christ says to the Laodiceans, I know your deeds, 
that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So that's sort of a famous passage. Being lukewarm Christians, Jesus is going to throw them up out of his mouth because they're so gross, they're neither hot nor cold. But now here's the question. In what sense were the Laodiceans lukewarm? In what sense was their faith lukewarm? Well, in this sense, verse 17, you say, I am what? Rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. So the reason they were lukewarm is because Laodicea was a very wealthy town we know from history and they had just bought into the the health and wealth gospel of their time and and that it was all about making money, amassing things and being comfortable. And there's that Babylonian spirit. I don't need anything. I am queen. I'll never be a widow. I'll never mourn. I have everything I need. That self-reliant, self-focused, luxuriating kind of use of wealth But as a result, they become lukewarm. And so what do you do as a Christian when you wake up one morning and it dawns on you that you've become Babylonian? I guess that's that's the application question. What do we do when we're Christians and we wake up one morning and we realize, I've bought into the whole game. I've bought into the whole lie. My whole life has become about the comforts and the, and the prosperities and the things that are offered to me every time I turn on the TV, every time I drive down the highway, every time I open up a magazine, it's always there. And I've bought into it. And my faith is lukewarm. What do you do when you wake up and you realize that you're just like a blah, spit me out of my mouth Christian? Or that we've become a blah, spit us out of his mouth church, if we have. You know, what do we do with that? You know, when you wake up and be like, man, my faith is so lame. I go to church, I go through the motions of Christianity, but my real religion is, you know, all this, you know, this, this is my real religion, you know, all the stuff, all the things I'm into, all my hobbies and my, my sports and my pastimes and my achieve, attainments. If that's my God, my faith is so dead and lukewarm. You can't serve both God and money. What do you do when you wake up and you realize I've been serving money instead of God? And the answer is, you go to Jesus. Because he's the one who takes us out of Babylon. Just like that angel grabbed hold of Lot and finally said, I'm dragging you out. We are getting out of Sodom and Gomorrah. We need Christ. We need Christ to change our hearts. And so the first step is just to recognize your need. You know, verse 17, you do not realize they're wretched, poor, blind and naked. So Jesus says, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. The first step is just to come back to Christ and find Him as your treasure. To find Him as your reward. And then it goes on to say, verse 19, those I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. We need to repent recognize our need, repent. And then I love verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's a verse that's often used evangelistically, right? It's a verse that's often used to to tell non-Christians, hey, Jesus is knocking at the door, you should let him in. But let's remember, brothers and sisters, this was written first and foremost to professing Christians not to non-Christians. It was written to us Christians who've 
pushed Christ out because our life is filled up with the riches of this world. And he says, I'm standing there and I'm knocking at the door. If anyone hears my voice, do you, do you hear Christ knocking? You know, this is the heartbeat of Christ. Let me in. I want to come in. When's the last time you had a real meal with Christ, so to speak? Where is your fellowship with the Lord? Brothers and sisters, take hold of His nail-pierced hand and let Him lead you through the burning streets of Babylon and drag you out. Only Christ can do it. And then the second application, the second R, is in verse 20 of chapter 18. Verse 20. So first one is run. Second, rejoice. I'm going to preach on that next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we reach out our hand to You this morning. We reach out our hand to the doorknob. And Lord, we by the power of the Holy Spirit, we turn the doorknob and we say, Jesus, come in. Jesus, we reach out our hand to take hold of Your hand this morning and we say, show me the way out of Babylon. Lord, lead me through its burning streets before it's too late. Lord Jesus, make Yourself our treasure. Subdue and captivate our hearts. Cause us to love You more than anything else. God, show us where we are really poor and naked and blind and show us where we need to let go of this world and all of its promises. Help us to put our backs to the world and our faith to our faces to the new Jerusalem. And God, help us to run, to run with all of our might, to run toward You. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.